our scripture for the day is Genesis 31. Continuing uh, Pastor Dave's uh, study through the book of Genesis. Uh, That's page 25 in your pew Bible, Genesis chapter 31. And we're picking up the action in verse 13. We're picking up the action, as, uh, we're literally um, in the middle of God speaking to Jacob. Genesis 31, starting verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Amorian by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and across the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent to the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so I might so I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. Now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out uh, what, I, what I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of two female servants, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent, and he entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and had put them in a camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all around the tent that he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Uh, Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. And what have you found of of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. 
These twenty years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats I have not miscarried have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the the heat consumed me, and by and the cold by night, and my sheep fled before my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Sahadutha, but Jacob called it the heap Gilead. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mitzpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap in the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, and I will not pass over this heap to you. You will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, despite the fact that we've had some really amazing weather uh, the last few weeks, uh, fall is fully upon us. I hope that's not a depressing uh, thing for me to say to you. I know that a number of you love fall. This is your favorite time of the year. Uh, You've been craving the pumpkin spice all year long, and now it's finally here. And despite the fact that it's four weeks away... Halloween is going to be here before you know it. Uh, The stores have already been flogging this for the last month, and actually they're probably getting ready for their Christmas stock. Um, I realize that this is a controversial thing to talk about in conservative Baptist circles. Uh, I, I realize that you might have a different opinion on this, but I actually kind of like Halloween. Uh, I think it's a fun night for the kids. I think it's great for whole communities. But I'll tell you what I do mind, and that's when kids come to the door, especially when older teenagers come to the door, and they just stand there, you know, holding their bags open without saying anything. And when that happens, and it happens frequently these days, I take that opportunity to teach these entitled little punks 
that there's actually a, a history to Halloween. There, there's a whole traditional back and forth that you, you need to engage in, okay? And uh, kids these days would do well to learn this tradition because it's, it's part of the whole thing. So I explain when that happens, when people come up and just stand there waiting, I explain to them, listen, when you come to my door, you, you ring my bell if I'm not standing right there, and once you see me, that's when you yell, trick or treat. You actually have to say that, and it's best if you yell it. And kids, what's happening there is that you're presenting me with a choice, okay? It's, it's basically blackmail, um, but it's accepted, so it's okay. If I choose trick then I'll be making the rather insane decision to allow you to play a trick on me. You know, you can egg my house, you can TP my car, you can smash my pumpkins or whatever. Whatever devilish thing you decide to do, if I choose trick, that's what you're free to do. But if I take the treat option, then I'm choosing to basically pay you off. Okay? Um, if I... I'm, I'm paying you off with candy. If I, if I choose to put some Tootsie Rolls in your pillowcase, then presumably you'll leave me alone and you'll move on to the next house and do this whole routine over again. See, that's what Halloween's all about, kids. Okay? Uh, so please, I'm going to need you to say trick or treat. And it wouldn't hurt you to say thank you as you turn to leave. That, that's my speech. <laughs> um, and I also, because by then I'm on a roll, so I'll also probably say something. And you need to put a little bit more effort into your costume. Let me guess, you're a hunter, right? But I see you walk by my house every single day and you're wearing real tree gear on your way to school. So these are your regular clothes, right? Yeah. Anyway, that's the kind of conversation that you can expect if you come to my house on Halloween and if you're not following the proper protocols. Well, that's unless my wife happens to be at the door. She's far more gracious than I. And uh, I, I admit that I can be a little bit hard and sometimes it gets me in trouble. I've told some of you this story before, but one time these two full-bodied teenage boys, I won't even call them boys, they're, they're men, they were like 17, big dudes, they came to the door with the bare minimum that could be considered a costume, and they just stuck out their bags without saying anything, so of course I subjected them to my full rant, and even more strongly than typically, because these are basically grown men, and after I was delivered of my Halloween history lecture, still, there's nothing. Just blank stares. And one of the kids actually had the audacity to reach out into the bowl that I was holding uh, without saying anything, and I smacked his hand back. I did, I'm, not a, I'm not ashamed to tell you. I slapped it so hard that he dropped the candy back into the bowl. I'm sorry, I'm going to just have to insist. Just say the thing. Just say trick or treat. Just throw me a bone here. 
Anyway, I don't know how long the stalemate, the stalemate went on for, but it was enough time for a lady to walk up our driveway to our front door, come to the door and look at me and say, they're deaf. <laughs> so since I'm probably never going to give that speech again, kids, just remember on Halloween, it's trick or treat. And I want to submit to you that in the Christian life, it's trick or trust. Trick or trust. Those are really your two options. Either you're going to trust the Lord and believe his promises, or you're going to resort to all manner of trickery in order to bring about the outcomes that you desire. You're going to try to make those certain outcomes happen by your, by your maneuvering, by your trickery. You're going to want to control and manipulate and be sneaky and be underhanded in order to bring about what you consider the good life. Or your other option is, of course, you could be overhanded, which is to say that you're going to want to hand all things over to the one who is truly in control. Trick or trust, these are your options. And in these uh, last few chapters, um, I realize it spanned a number of months, but in these last few chapters in Genesis, we've, uh, they, they've really given us plenty of opportunities to see these two options play out. So if you're uh, the type of person that's considering how you, you want to live, you, you actually get to see how both of these options play out and which of them uh, leads to faithfulness and which of them leads to all sorts of problems. So on the one hand, we've seen the very great and precious promises of God. These are promises that were made first to Abraham and then next to Isaac and that have been recently reaffirmed to the next generation, Jacob, who is in the spotlight these days. These are promises that God has made about a people, um, promises about a place or land that he is going to give to them, promises about provision, promises about prosperity and blessing. And as we've been seeing, these promises of God are beginning to be fulfilled in Jacob's life. For example, he now has 12 children, which, if you're paying attention, is the, the beginning of a very great multitude of people. And not only that, but Jacob has become incredibly prosperous. The last chapter uh, that we looked at here, chapter 30, in the last verse, really gives us a great summary statement of what's been going on. When it says, thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. In other words, what is that summary statement saying? He's saying that God's word, God's promises are being fulfilled. The Lord is proving himself to be totally worthy of our trust. On the other hand, these chapters have, have featured some of the best tricksters the world has ever seen. Jacob, he's been deceiving since the beginning. From that very first pot of stew 
all the way to carving these striped sticks from the almond tree. So you could say from soup to nuts, Jacob has been full of trickery. And he's met his match in dear old Uncle Laban. That snake has been scheming since we first met him. And and it's gotten to the point, as we'll see in our chapter, of being totally shameless and rather pathetic. Our passage today then sets the stage for a contest. It's not just a contest between Jacob and Laban. (laughs) It's a contrast between the strategies of trick or trust. So we'll want to see how this plays out. And I think we should begin by cataloging some of the trickery that we see in this passage. That'll be our first heading if you're taking notes. Number one, the tricks. And there's a number of them, and they're performed by all of the main characters. So we'll kind of run down through the the cast of characters and look at their trickery. But before we look at Jacob's trick, let's just remind ourselves of the context. As a result of his prosperity, Jacob uh, can, can tell that the attitudes towards him have changed significantly. People are souring. He's become a persona non grata there in Laban's household. Uh, For example, in verse 1, Jacob is consistently hearing rumors that his brother-in-laws think that he's a thief. They've been saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. That's the word on the street with the brothers. And the father obviously believed the same thing because as Jacob notices in verse 2, he's noticed that Laban's countenance towards him has completely changed. You know, there used to be uh, thumbs up or at least head nods as they were passing each other. Now there's just coldness. Jacob knows that Laban didn't, doesn't regard him with the same favor that he once did. Their, their conversations are quite a bit more abrupt, and their, their li- looks towards each other are, are blank, if not icy. And all of this is prompting Jacob to realize that it's time that he gets out of Dodge. Now, his wives agree, which, which is amazing, because they probably didn't agree on much, um, even in that culture, uh, married women couldn't be taken away. They couldn't be removed from their families of origin without their consent. And generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that women are reluctant to move away from their, their families. That's not a bad thing. That's not a slam. That's just a normal and natural thing. I came across an interesting statistic Uh, a number of years ago. I wasn't able to track it down and get updated numbers, but the statistic went something like this. Something like 80% of Southern Baptist pastors live within 200 miles of their mother-in-laws. It's a weird way to to, uh, phrase a statistic, but the point is basically that um, families typically live within striking distance of Um, the woman's family of origin. But think about these girls. Their father had been so cruel to them and to their husband that Leah and Rachel are in total agreement in verses 14 to 16 
that yes, it's time for them to leave. But the crucial factor in this decision is a clear word from the Lord. This is recorded for us in verse 3 and then given to us again with a little more detail in verse 13. The Lord appears to Jacob in a dream and he says, Arise, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so we read in verse 17, So Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels. Now we need to be careful here in thinking about this because on the one hand, this is the language of obedience. God has said, arise and go. And the very next thing you read is that Jacob arose and went. And they match. That, that's obedience in action. But then on the other hand, we need to consider how it was that Jacob left and when it was that Jacob left. And the, the point to, to notice there is that Jacob left sneakily, stealthily. He waited until Laban and the whole household was away shearing sheep, which was a huge job given the size of his flocks. It could take, this is a project that could take a lot of manpower and um, many weeks to accomplish. And Jacob escapes in such a way that there is a minimum of three days distance, a head start for him, um, put it that way, which interestingly, if you're paying attention, this is the same distance that Laban put between them last chapter. Remember when he absconded with Jacob's share of the sheep before the deal got going officially, he, he took out all of those spotted sheep and gave them to his sons and set a distance of three days. But look at the narrator's perspective on all of this. Look at verse 20. It says, And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. The phrase that's translated there as tricked is literally, he stole the heart of. And rendered like that, when, when you render it like that, it actually helps you see a parallel with verse 19, which tells us that Rachel stole her father's household gods. And we're going to look at her trickery in just a minute, but I bring it up now to show you the parallelism. Rachel stole Laban's God. Jacob stole Laban's heart. And they're both presented to us as sneaky tricks. What is at the root of Jacob's trickery? Well, you might call it escapism. You might call it conflict avoidance. And I wonder if you've ever pulled this trick, or at least attempted it. That is, rather than face a challenging situation head-on, instead of having the, the difficult but necessary conversations, many people would rather just bury their head in the sands, or, or um, give in to their, what you might call a flight instinct, which is to just take off, to just run away. And this is actually becoming a chronic problem for Jacob. Remember back in chapter 27 when Jacob and his mother deceived Esau and, their fa and his father? And then things got really tense in the aftermath of all of that. Rebekah says to I Isaac, or sorry, 
a lot of names to keep track of. Rebecca says to Jacob, Arise and flee to my brother Laban. So Jacob flees to Haran to escape his problems, and now he's fleeing from Haran to escape his problems. He's always on the run. And this helps us to understand one of the problems with problem avoidance or escapism. As we'll see in chapter 33, Jacob is still going to have to come face to face with Esau. You know, when it comes to your problems, as they say, you can run, but you can't hide. Avoidance is almost always just temporary. Jacob might be thinking that he's escaping Laban, but at his best, at the very maximum, he's only delaying the inevitable by about seven days. Eventually, he's going to have to confront the issues head on. Well, let's look at Rachel's trickery. She steals her household gods. And she manages to pull this off without her father or even her husband or anyone else knowing about it. What's a little frustrating is that the narrator doesn't tell us why she does this. Some scholars um, seem to think it was because she wanted to lay claim to inheritance rights. And the way it worked back then was if you were in possession of the household gods, then you had the rightful claim on the inheritance. Some think that Rachel did this just for spite, just to stick it to her old man for all of the ways that he had um, mistreated her. So she, they, you know, the idea is that she just wants to take this parting shot and hit him right where it would hurt him the most, namely in terms of his idolatry. And and certainly there's a part of that going on. I'm I'm sure of it. But I think the simplest explanation, and maybe the least flattering one, is that Rachel took these figurines because she's got some idolatry, idolatry still left in her. She, somehow she's figured that these gods are going to give her good fortune, either in terms of her fertility, or you know, for traveling mercies, or both, whatever. She, she's still placing some amount of trust in these household gods. But then Rachel's trickery just continues, not just in the crime, but also in the cover-up. So when Laban catches up to this entourage that's trying to escape, he, he whines and cries about how he's been deprived of his family, and we'll look at his tricks in just a minute. But notice this for the time being, The climax of his complaint is this. It's at the end of verse 30. But why did you steal my gods? So all of this is just leading up to this climactic, short little, punchy statement. Why did you steal my gods? Forget the girls. Forget the grandkids. The thing that really chaps Laban's hide is that his idols have been stolen. So he undertakes a thorough search, and Jacob welcomes it. This is a challenge to Jacob. He's blissfully ignorant that anyone in his party might be responsible. And so um, he's so confident, in fact, 
that Jacob swears an oath that if anyone is found in possession of these idols, these gods, that person should be put to death. And little does he know that by that statement, he has put his wife, his favorite wife's life, in jeopardy. So the tension builds, and you can see this in the, in the narrative as Laban goes from tent to tent, and he's getting closer and closer, and finally he approaches his daughter Rachel, who says, Sorry, Daddy, you know that I always rise in your presence. It's the right thing to do. I always do it, but unfortunately I can't this time because, well, it's that time of the month. And if anything is going to make Laban, or any guy for that matter, call off the search, it's that. It's like, okay, yeah, okay, fine, yeah, whatever, moving on. And so it was that Rachel tricked her father into not looking in the saddlebags is where she was hiding these gods. Now, I don't want to get off on another rant here. There's enough of that for one day. But let me just say what everyone in the world is afraid to say. You know that we live in a day and an age where believe women is unchallenged dogma. We're not even supposed to entertain the idea that a woman might actually be manipulating a situation for her own benefit. Perish the thought. But here's what I suspect, and that is that the only ones buying that are men. Women know how conniving and deceitful and manipulative their own kind can be. Ladies, chances are you know exactly how you can frame things to make your husband drop an issue immediately. You know how to provide things or to withhold things in order to achieve your desired outcomes. And I'm, I'm not here, don't misunderstand me, I'm not for a second defending men, but let's not, let's not buy into this illusion that all of the problems in our society come down to toxic masculinity. Can we at least entertain the possibility that there might be such a thing as toxic femininity, that the fairer sex might be capable of some pretty unfair trickery. We'll just leave that there and move on to Laban's trick. And And he gets the trophy, as far as I'm concerned, in this long contest between these two heel grabbers, Laban is the undisputed champion. Listen to his speech in verses 26 to 28. And you have to believe that this speech was accompanied by all the appropriate emotions. He's turned on the waterworks and fainting spells and all the rest. He says, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and and trick me and did not tell me so I might have sent you away with mirth and song and tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? And now you've done foolishly. 
Do you know what that, that trick is called? That trick is called emotional manipulation, emotional blackmail. And we're all capable of this, but for some reason this is something that parents uh, tend to fall into. It's, it's one of the tricks in their tool bags that they like to resort to. It's a way of securing your, your intended outcome by casting yourself as the victim making people believe that they have, they've wronged you, that they've been unloving to you simply because your feelings are hurt. Your hurt, then, is the deciding factor. Your woundedness has the ultimate authority. On the basis of your subjective feelings alone, the other person is automatically guilty. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever inflicted this kind of emotional manipulation on other people? And one of the problems with this kind of trickery is that it relies on subjective feelings rather than objective truth. And in order to maximize the, the feelings, a person who is emotionally manipulating you is going to pay minimal attention to the truth, even though they may talk about the truth in theory. In practice, they're not paying any attention to what the actual truth is. So for example, much of what Laban says here is totally exaggerated, if not fabricated completely. For example, he says to Jacob, you've driven away my daughters like captives, when in actual fact, they're, they were captives in their father's household. He basically um, used the, all of these people like slaves. He says, Laban says that if he knew they were going, he would have sent them away <laughs> with mirth and song and tambourine and lyre. And that's the key word. Liar. <laughs> Laban certainly would not have thrown a farewell party. He would have thrown a pity party, just like he's doing now. And it's so transparent at this point. It's so, like, no one's buying this at this point. And what Laban is truly upset about is that his free labor is coming to an end. That the, the one through whom the Lord was blessing him, namely Jacob, was leaving and presumably the blessing of God was leaving as well. He's going to be without goods and without gods, small g. And this is too much for, Jacob, uh, for Laban. Well, we could say a lot more about the trickery that we see all over this passage, but I wanted to just give you a sampling there, uh, one from each of the main characters. And I, I, I did want to show you some of the problems associated with these kinds of deceptions, these sorts of tricks. For example, I wanted to help you see that avoidance ultimately never works. You know, sooner or later you're going to have to face up to your problems. Uh, I wanted you to understand that emotional manipulation is based on feeling, not on fact. But, but here, you need to hear me say this to you, that those problems that I've mentioned are only secondary. The foundational issue with trickery is that it is antithetical to trust. 
And so it's trick or trust. And when you're fully engaging in the one, you're going to be neglecting the other. And that brings us to our second point. So let's highlight the or trust part. Not only is this passage full of trickery, but it's also full of evidence that the trickery is unnecessary because the Lord proves himself to be completely trustworthy. Let me show you this in a few different places. First, it's ne- it was unnecessary for Jacob to sneak away from Laban because the Lord, the same Lord <coughs> that commanded him to return home is the same Lord <coughs> that said in verse 12, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. And it's the same Lord who promised in verse 3, I will be with you. You know, if you have the promises of God, if you have the presence of God, if you have the protection of God, then there is no need to flee. There is no need to fear any man. Rather than bury your head in the sand, because of the Lord's presence and because of the Lord's power that is in you and upon you, friends, you can have confidence to face challenging situations head on. There's nothing to fear. You, you, can have, uh, you, you have the ability and the confidence to face challenging people head-on and have difficult conversations head-on. We can have, because of all God is and all God has said to us, we can have the same boldness of the psalmist who declared in Psalm 118, which Glenn read for us at the beginning of the service, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I shall look in triumph over those who hate me. This is the kind of confidence that the the presence and the power of the Lord can instill in the believer. He's trustworthy. Second, I want you to consider Rachel's trickery in stealing the family gods. Consider the foolishness of her dependence on these gods. Consider the insanity of Laban's desperation without these gods. It's interesting to me that the Bible never wastes an opportunity to slam idolatry in some of the the most humorous ways. Never waste an opportunity to, to let us know, to remind us just how folly idolatry is, how foolish idolatry is. um, The Bible is also helping us to see the absolute worthlessness of gods that have been fashioned by human hands. And consider the strong statements along these same lines that our passage makes. For, For example, consider this. You've heard of kidnapping, right? That's when someone typically older and bigger and stronger takes someone smaller and weaker by force. Well, as one commentator asks, have you ever heard of God-napping? Which is exactly what we have here. What, what, What kind of a God worthy of worship and devotion is powerless to stop himself or herself from being pilfered? 
you'd think that would be a basic uh, quality that a god must possess to be able to defend himself against petty theft. And then these gods suffer an even greater indignity by being sat on by a menstruating woman. You'll forgive my, uh, my frankness in talking about this because I'm just opening up scripture to you. Later, when the one true and living God regulates his own worship, you, you understand that a woman who is in this time period is rendered unclean and not able to approach God because of his holiness, because of his purity. As for these gods, in the delicate but frank words of Bruce Waltke, quote, they are equivalent to a sanitary napkin. Oh, the, the folly of clinging to worthless idols. But the Lord God is completely trustworthy. Of course, Laban is panicking because without these family gods, presumably he's not going to be able to practice divination. We saw him doing this last week. Remember, he consulted these, these household gods probably uh, when he was trying to determine uh, what was happening that he was increasing in wealth. And these household gods, through, through divination, he was able to understand that it was the Lord who was prospering him. That's a pretty humorous uh, little anecdote on its own. But now, how is Laban ever going to figure out what is going on in life without being able to consult these gods? And I'll tell you, verse 24, by the living and active God of the universe coming to him in a dream and warning him, not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And that's just a, a, an expression that means, basically, you better not do anything to harm my man. That's what God says to Laban. And I want you to think how confidence-inspiring this would be for Jacob when Laban repeats that story to him in verse 29. Laban tells him what went on the night before, and even though Laban's typical bull is attached to it, listen, he says, it's in my power to do you harm. Pfft. No, it's not. Not when the all-powerful one commands you not to harm him. There, there's no question here who the one true and living God is and how false and foolish are these idols. And commentators point out that what we have in this passage is a sort of a legal complaint between Laban and Jacob. Uh, here you have two parties, each with their grievances, and uh, how it goes is that Laban accuses, and then in verses 36 to 42, uh, Jacob gives an impassioned defense, and he calls upon, you'll, you'll remember uh, in this story too, that Jacob is calling upon all of his kinsmen as witnesses to his innocence. He says, let, it, let any of our family members point out what it is that I've, I've stolen. So basically, this is a courtroom scene, this passage. 
But here's the kicker, that even before the trial kicks off, the judge has already rendered his verdict. The Lord God comes to Laban in a dream and stands in defense of Jacob and rebukes Laban. As Jacob puts it in verse 42, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. That's a little confusing, but notice that fear has a capital F. In other words, this is a personal being. This is God. This is a way to refer to God. And it's a, it's a powerful, striking way of speaking of God. This is the God of Isaac who instills fear. The fear of Isaac is the awesome, powerful God. And that God, Jacob would understand, is on my side. Friends, is that ringing any bells? Does this remind you of anything? Isn't this the beauty of the gospel? Picture another courtroom scene, except this time you're the guilty party. You're the sinner who has rebelled against your creator and your God and your judge. You've fallen short and continue to fall short of his glory. He's the one who in his holiness and righteousness accuses you, and justifiably so. At the same time, he, he's the judge, and God has the power to do you harm, even eternal harm, in a place reserved for the wicked, a place called hell. But instead of that, you hear him bang the gavel and render his judgment, not guilty, not guilty. And that's because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. He has suffered under the wrath of God in your place. All of the judgment that you deserve has fallen on Him instead. He has been declared sinner so that you can be declared righteous. And so the, and so the judge is on your side if you are in Christ today. Brothers and sisters, hear afresh these comforting words from Romans 8. We had a great opportunity to um, begin to consider this in Sunday school this morning. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friends, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither de death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor uh, powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Understand what this means, friends. Don't miss this. It means that you are secure in the love of Christ. It means that there is nothing or no one, there's no circumstance that can put that in jeopardy. If you're in Christ, then God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? That means that that you can put all of your trust in Him to bring you all the way home. That means that you don't have to resort to trickery to try to bring about some kind of desired outcome. The thing that you, in your limited perspective, thinks is the right place to be or the right thing to have. You don't have to resort to trickery to bring any of that about. You don't have to deceive or manipulate or tinker with the situations and the people in your life because the Lord is in your corner. He's on your side. You're his man. You're his woman. You're his daughter, his son. And so don't trick. Trust. Now, I realize that time is uh, expiring, but let me just say a few words about the end of the chapter, really verses 43 and following. This is our third and final heading. Trick or treaty. By now, Laban has been forced into a pitiful position. He's clearly in the wrong. The Lord has defended Jacob, but you don't see any kind of humility on Laban's part at all. Laban's still saying dumb things like, these daughters are my daughters, the, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. And that is nothing other than pure delusion. But, but this actually should stand as a warning to you, especially those of you who may be here today who are still in your sins, folks that have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. I want you to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin the deceitfulness of sin. See how stupid it makes a person. Take note of how hard a person's heart could get. So let me just urge you, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him, but repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this peace treaty that Laban proposes is entirely for his sake. Jacob doesn't need it. First of all, Jacob's not the aggressor. And secondly, Jacob now is fully trusting in the Lord to provide for him, to to protect him. But when you traffic in trickery, when that's the currency that you're dealing in, as Laban does, then you need something like a treaty to kind of cover yourself. When you don't have the Lord defending you, then you have to try to manufacture some sort of mechanism for your own defense. So he proposes this treaty. And it's no skin off Jacob's back. So he gets to work setting up these heaps of stones, these pillars that are going to serve as boundary markers. There's there's two copies of everything you'll notice in here because there's two parties. But the idea is that neither party is going to cross this boundary marker in order to cause the other party harm. And throughout the the process, Laban is still incredibly delusional. 
For example, he says in verse 50, If you oppress my daughters, so help me. Which is a, a favorite thing for fathers to say about their daughters. But, but Laban is so clueless. He's so deceived that he doesn't even recognize the irony of what he's saying. He's the one that's oppressed his daughters. If you, if you take on more wives, so help me. He's the one. Yeah, Laban, you hold to the sanctity of marriage, right? You're the guy that gave both of your daughters to this guy. So it's all just an illusion. It's all just phoniness. And then Laban's religious syncretism is on full display. Because as we've seen, he can invoke the Lord's name, but then immediately he invokes a pagan god, a god of Nahor. And thankfully, Jacob, he's trying to salvage this. He corrects the blasphemy in 53 and 54 by swearing. Again, here's this way to um, talk about the Lord God, the fear, capital F, of his father Isaac. And Jacob offers a sacrifice to the one true and living God. Then the next morning they wake up, they say their goodbyes, and they go their separate ways. Laban returns to his home and presumably returns to all of his tricks. And Jacob returns to the home of his kinsmen, just full of trust in his trustworthy God. And soon, friends, you may be happy to hear this, soon will be time for us to go our separate ways. My question for you is, where will you go? What's it going to be? Trick or trust? And may the Lord grant that each of us go forth in, in full faith, trusting His power, trusting His presence, His provisions, Trusting his promises. Amen? Amen.